You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just woof, a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome to The Spear, the podcast about the combat experience, brought to you by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm your host, Tim Heck, and today I'm joined by Major Scott Heron, who's an instructor here at West Point, an infantry officer, and is going to tell us a story about his time in Afghanistan. Scott, welcome to The Spear. Thank you, Tim. Appreciate you having me on. Um, so I think we're, we're going to talk about an experience from uh, 2010. So um, kind of lead into this deploy into this uh, you know situation that that we had. So starting off that deployment, we started in uh, the summer of 2009. I was I was a platoon leader, and by the end of this deployment, I was a company commander. Um, so kind of the backstory beginning of the deployment, I was the the scout platoon leader for First Battalion, 508th Parachute Infantry Regiment, and I did the first three four months as as that platoon leader. What's a scout platoon leader's responsibilities? So normally a, a scout, it's a scout and sniper platoon. Normally um, you do, you know, area and route reconnaissance for the battalion. Obviously we're in Afghanistan fighting in a small war with, you know, insurgents. So we were used as a normal rifle platoon. So um, were we trained on scout scout operations and reconnaissance and surveillance? Yes, we did do a couple operations where we got to do our, our prime mission, but generally speaking, we were like the battalion's go-to, you know, unit, seeing that we had a lot of a lot of Ranger qualified personnel, a lot of RSLIC, uh, meaning you know, reconnaissance trained soldiers. So we were used not for our primary mission. I'm assuming to be the scout platoon leader, you've got a little bit of experience. Kind of what was your pipeline to wind up there? Yeah, so this is my second platoon. So my first platoon uh, was a rifle platoon that I deployed with 07, uh, 08. We came back from that deployment, and obviously when you come back from, you know, I only hit the tail end of that one, but it was a 15-month deployment. So at that point, the, the whole battalion is going to go through, uh, you know, reintegration and, and you know, be rebuilt. Um, so at that point, I, was, I went from the junior platoon leader to now I'm the senior platoon leader, um, and then, you know, was, was given the scout platoon as my, as my second platoon leader job. Um, so it was, I was very fortunate, a really great experience, and I, and I trained with them. For the next year before our, our next deployment in the summer of 09. Um, and like I said, I spent, it was there until November. And then I switched over to be a company executive officer with Charlie Company, uh, 1st Battalion, 508th Parachute Infantry Regiment. And that, that's the unit that this story is, is really about. So I was a, you know, company executive officer, you know, for a few months. Um, 
And in, uh, on 2 February uh, 2010, um, my company commander, Captain Dan Witten, uh, was, was killed in an IED strike uh, out near the border of Pakistan. And that is kind of where you know, I had to temporarily step up as the company commander and eventually was, was selected to be the permanent company commander. That's a lead into how I got into, you know, company command with, with SECO. Towards the end of our deployment, we received orders. So we're, we're currently, just to put it in context, we're in Zabal province, which is uh, just north of Kandahar. Um, it is, it is actually Mo Omar's like birthplace. Um, and we actually found out he was there when he passed away. He was right near, uh, Fob Wolverine, right down the, right down the road. So we were pretty close to where he was located. Uh, we were there, you know, all the way until like the spring and we got orders to reposition down to Kandahar where the fighting had intensified quite a bit. So kind of the, the thought process with it was they would send another, uh, you know, Infantry battalion down to Kanahar City, and we try and secure the perimeter of the city. Something similar to the concept that that was used in Iraq for Baghdad. So different environment, but that was that was kind of the the mission we were given. Um, I was given the western portion of the city. So people are unfamiliar with the terrain. Obviously, to the west you have the Argandab uh, River Valley that then intersects with the with the Helmand River. Uh, very lush, fertile area. So the city actually like goes right up and touches uh, these orch- orchards, um, and I call it, I call it the the breadbasket um, for that area. That's we kind of got got moved out. The entire uh, company got moved down to to Kandahar, um, and then we're basically told, "Hey, occupy this area. Start building tactical infrastructure, small bases to to provide us uh, force protection, um, and then start." you know, regulating traffic coming into the city with our partners. Who were a partner down there were local police. So they, back then we just, we called them the Afghan National Police. And then they were just changed, they were changed to Afghan Uniform Police. But those are your regular street cops, um, not very well trained, not very well equipped, but they're in small police stations, you know, in the city and around the periphery. So we partnered with them, and we also partnered uh, with another element called the Nash, uh, Afghan National Civil Order Police, um, which are, you would say, a more elite um, unit in that they actually have, like, you know, battalion headquarters and brigade headquarters, and, and they have, they're generally well equi- uh, equipped. Um, but generally speaking, they're that, that higher order police force that are, is sent into areas that need more policing. So those were kind of our two partners in the area. We didn't, we didn't have, uh, we didn't have any army. Um, they did come in and come out of the, the area, but we weren't partnered with them in, in Western Kandahar. We got into position and started establishing, you know, three separate bases, one in the northern portion of northwestern portion of the city, and then two in the western portion of the city, tying in with our sister battalion uh, that was right next door in the Argandab. Prior to moving into the city, had you been largely conducting operations in the valleys and the mountains in this breadbasket area, or had you trained and done anything urban-wise? Yeah, so when we were in Zabal, first I was in northern Zabal, which is all mountainous. Um, so that that was, you know, mountains and valleys. Um, when I went to southern uh, Zabal, you have, a, you have a, a dysphoria of different train types. You got flat open areas, you got mountains, you got salt flats. Um, so you have a, you have a variance of rural areas. So in terms of urban operations, just the small towns and villages in that area, um, were we trained ahead of time for urban ops? Yes, we were. Um, we originally thought we were going to go to Iraq. So we focused a lot of training on conducting urban operations. So it wasn't foreign to us, but obviously we went from very, very rural 
to you know the largest city in, in in southern Afghanistan. Like I said, we're on the periphery, so we our bases are like right on the edge of the city versus being like in the city core, but a five minute ride and you're in the middle of the city. So uh, Kandahar has a large population, but it's not a massive city. We arrived there, start building our our, our small bases, um, and started implementing you know you know basically traffic points to start processing vehicles coming in and out of the out of the city um, and doing localized patrols uh, while trying to tie in with our our sister battalion who we had literally there was another company headquarters like 800 meters away from my base so very dense amount of uh, US soldiers in an area just cuz it was very lively back then so just to kind of talk about the combat in the area so the the Argonaut, like I said imagine Fairly lush, um, you know, agriculture in the area. Um, they have everything from like eggplants to pomegranates is a big one that they have in the area. And then your miscellaneous drugs, which is, is, was normal in Afghanistan. But interesting, each, each field had, you know, eight to 12 foot walls. So you can imagine a 300 meter by 300 meter area over and over again with these, you know, giant walls around them to protect the crops from theft and, and people walking through their fields. And inside of these things became engagement areas for for really complex IED attacks. So, you know, Iraq obviously went through a whole of the, the IEDs and and this deployment is when they, they started really grasping onto this this technique. Uh, they learned over the years that fighting us in in large large or medium uh, gunfights usually resulted in in significant casualties. So really in the South, they focused on IED attacks. So then this this was a change from the last deployment that I was in when they were still openly trying to fight. In this area is where they kind of perfected their their IED craft that would spread all over the South and become their kind of main method of attacking us uh, through this deployment and then into the next one that I did in this, in Southern Afghanistan. So if you think about these orchards, inside of them, they littered the area with IEDs. In the walls, tripwires along the ground, they would put objects out for you to see and either draw you in or make you go somewhere else. And so they really started honing their craft and, and there was some significant casualties in the area because of those, those IEDs. Very, they did, they were um, pretty good at their craft and they got better as we went, you know, in that area. So that's kind of the setup. Really what, what I want to talk about today is, is my battalion headquarters was attacked. It was basically, we'll call it a, a complex attack, whatever that is. Um, but it, it was attacked, and I want to talk about that that experience specifically. So, leading into this specific uh, engagement, basically one of my, one of my uh, platoons uh, was out on a patrol with their um, their ANCOP police officers, and one of the police officers didn't want to patrol anymore. And so one of my one of my soldier, one of my paratroopers, walked up to the the police officer and was like trying to get him up, and it, it got. I won't say super physical, but he did grab him and, and pick him up and was like, you need to patrol. And unbeknownst to me, that word gets back to the, you know, the, the Afghan, um, you know, chain of command. And then next thing my, my battalion commander knows about it. And he gives me a call and says, Hey, I want to, I want to bring you down here and we're going to have a discussion about what occurred. So he wanted, you know, my, my first platoon's chain of command, uh, me and my first sergeant to, to come to the headquarters you know, for, for a discussion about, about that incident. Um, so, um, this is July 13th, uh, 2010. 
Um, I get that call from a battalion commander and I know he's not too pleased with me. You know, we're, we, I get my, my headquarters element together and I call first platoon and let them know we're going to stop by to pick up their chain of command. So PL, platoon sergeant, squad leader, team leader, and the paratrooper who, who, who grabbed the, um, the Afghan police officer. Get in our vehicles. We do a kind of a, a final conditions check. And, and really that's when, when we, you know, we, we get two pieces of information. One, Obviously, we're looking up in the sky. The weather is pretty bad, illumination poor. So what we call a red condition was was occurring, which means you're not going to get air. There's not going to be any, uh, you know, ISR, no drones, no airplanes, no no helicopters are going to be flying in, in red conditions unless it's something very significant. So we knew that. And then two, we got we got intelligence that came in that said the the you know, the Taliban, local Taliban were planning some sort of significant attack. And then specifically, the the target that we thought they were going to go after was the um, Sariposa prison, which is a prison on the western portion of Kandahar City, where there's lots of Taliban. And usually annually, um, they attack it and break out their friends. Um, and so that's where we, we thought the target was going to be. To put this into context, you are located in the western part of the city, how far is this prison away? I mean, there's there is this history of these massive prison breaks there. You're, I mean, we're talking clock, like a kilometer and a half. Okay, so, so you would logically be the people responding to that from an American perspective. We wouldn't. Um, so, and everything's so condensed because this is you know a large a large city. You know, um, so getting to that location, if I was to walk, it would take me hours and hours and hours because you'd have to go over all these high walls and you'd have to be clearing for mines the entire way, driving you get there in 30 minutes, but there's many other units between me and and that prison. So but that, that's two pieces of intel I got before I left. So normally we'd limit minimize movement during red and black conditions. So like you still do patrols, but generally speaking we'll set up ambushes and overwatch and not be actively walking around because because of the the heightened threat of not being able to get a medevac in if if someone got injured. So so those are the two pieces of information. So my uh, my mortar platoon sergeant or my mortar section sergeant, Sergeant Fielder, was the convoy commander. And so we jumped in the vehicles and uh, we moved out about a kilometer to the northeast to to pick up uh, the members of 1st Platoon. You know, we went there, we picked them up, um, and then it's about a 30-minute ride because you're going to drive into the center of Kanar City. And then you got to cut south and then cut back west along uh, Highway 1 to get to the and cop headquarters, which is also my battalion headquarters. So they're, you know, those are our partners. So our battalion headquarters was co-located in their, in their, um, I think it was a brigade level cop or fob. Getting there, um, you got to stop a lot because the city, that the police, what they do at night is they just string Constantino wire out in the roads. Um, so you got to stop and move it out of the way, drive through, put it back in place. Um, so it took about 30 minutes, um, to get to the prison and, I swear when we were driving, I mean, get to the ANCOP headquarters, I swear when we were driving by the, the prison, there was small arms fire, like going over our vehicle. So something was going on. We continued down about, uh, it's about another kilometer and a half from the prison is our, is the battalion headquarters. So we arrive, um, you know, we're talking, uh, 20 to 2100 hours. Um, we pull up to the ECP. We get out, we clear our weapons, and then we escort our our vehicles into into the the, the motor pool that they had there. And so we, you know, combat park ready to move out because after probably having this great discussion, I'm probably not going to want to hang out very long. We stop there. 
my first sergeant, first sergeant Shane Summers, and then Sergeant Fielder and I like got together and I kind of gave Sergeant Fielder like, hey, you're going to wash the vehicles, have them ready to go, um, or we'll probably be back in an hour or so. So kind of gave him a little uh, five-point contingency plan before I walked over to the uh, the, the actual uh, tactical operations center. So at this point, we're in, a, we're in a friendly base. So what do we do? We take off all our combat gear. So I think I was the only person that actually had a weapon. I had my pistol and we walked, you know, through the, through the base, navigating all these, these buildings towards the, the battalion talk. So just to talk about the base, the, the ANCOP, their facilities are all hard structure, actual like buildings. So they have like large guard towers. They're made out of cement and they have windows and, and all their buildings are actual buildings. Um, and that's all kind of in the southern portion of the compound. Once you get past their area, you get into the American side. There's no distinction. It's just you go from hard stand buildings to all of a sudden you're in a tent city. So um, our our battalion, most of the battalion headquarters was just Alaskan tents. So tents that are, you know, raid and our actual talk was in a single hard stand building that the Afghans let us let us have. So so we walk to the the, the tactical operations center. We, we go inside. We're standing in the back. They're about to have the nightly, you know, commander's update brief. So we're in the back, make eyeballs with my battalion commander and a few of the other people that I need to talk to while I'm there, the three, the two, et cetera. And we're just waiting for the meeting to end to to have this this discussion. Scott, you the there's no distinction between the Afghan side of the base and the American side of the base. It's tent city. This is in an era of a lot of green on blue attacks. Were there sandbags up, checkpoints, or was it open range? So I'd say 2010 is when it's, it started to appear. So the, the green on blue scenario was not something that we were used to. So I have been living this whole deployment with my partners. Uh, so this it isn't until after this deployment that we start doing like the guardian angel and, and uh, upscaling our force pro. So at this point where it's a very rare occurrence that uh, green on blue occurs. So it's, it's new. It's something that was fairly startling to us because we live with our partners side by side in the same bases. And so it was, it was something new. I think I'm, so I'm, I'm in the, I'm in the talk, you know, waiting for, you know, my, my summary execution at the end of this meeting uh, when a large explosion goes off. So we're in a hard stand building, probably one of the safer, uh, you know, being in a tent, not not as good. And initially we think, oh, indirect. You know, that's usually you're like, hey, probably, you know, they shot a rocket or or something of that nature. You know, we're we're standing in the back and we're and we're like, we start hearing something. So we go outside and and there's small arms fire RPGs. Um and we're like, wow, that's those bullets are inside the compound. They're not outside of the compound. So at this point, we're like, I have my my sweet M9 Beretta, and we have nothing else. No night vision, no rifles, n- no nothing. You know, I talked to you know my first sergeant and and PL and platoon sergeant, um, and we're like, hey, we're we're gonna we're gonna move back to our vehicles to get get our combat equipment and figure out what's going on. So so we move through the you know the the compound again, get to our vehicles. Uh, get our equipment on, and, I, and I'm talking to Sergeant Fielder with my first sergeant. We're like, "Hey, man, the vehicles, you know, get Redcon one, get up on comms, so that if we need you, you can move the vehicles towards our location." So at that point, you know, I grab my my small element. So it's it's me, it's my first sergeant, first sergeant Summers. It's it's my platoon leader, which is a uh, first lieutenant uh, Christopher Gecky. It's um, my platoon sergeant, Sergeant Fowler, and then the squad leader, uh, Sergeant McLaughlin. And then his team leader, Sergeant Wilkinson, and then PFC Kurkowski. That's, 
you know, the paratrooper that that put his hands on the the police officer. So we all get equipped up and we move back to the talk. And, you know, we get there and my battalion commander is outside trying to figure out what's what's going on, trying to assess the situation. And we it was it was pretty funny. We got in like a like a huddle and it's like we think we know where we think some of the fire was coming from the northern portion of the compound. So we're like, hey, I told my battalion commander, it's like, sir, I can I can move my element over there. I'll leave Krakowski here to guard the the talk. Um, so that no one can, can get in there and we'll go see what's going on in the northern portion of the compound. And how big is this compound? So, I mean, it's, it's got, it's a, it's a ANCOP brigade headquarters. So there's probably like, but I don't think that's the size that we think of. I would say there's several hundred police officers there. And then, you know, our, our headquarters company, you know, with, with some additional augmentation, uh, there to, to provide, you know, force pro and whatnot. So fairly large compound, not massive because it is in the city, but fairly large. Um, the, like I said, the towers are actually like three, four story buildings. Um, unfortunately have glass, which no one, why would you do that? But large, large towers. And then the whole perimeter is, uh, you know, the Alaskan type barriers. So like you see Jersey barriers along the side of the road. These are just, you know, eight to 10 foot tall, uh, Jersey barriers that are around the perimeter, kind of making, creating a makeshift wall uh, for the compound. We decide that's the plan. We're going to go around the corner and and start moving up towards the northern part, portion of the compound where we're taking the gunfire and RPGs. Um, we basically, my small little team, we go around the we go around the corner and we start moving up. And fortunately, that that first couple movements, there's like containers and things you can get behind, and it was it was kind of. It was kind of eerie. Like I, I jumped next to a container, and there's one of my one of my really good buddies, like with his rifle, like you know, he's got his nods, and he's like, "Hey," I'm like, "What's going on?" He's like, "Hey, we're taking fire from over there." I'm like, "Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna go up there and 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 see what it is." And and um, I just remember conversing, you know, with with my buddy, um, and it was just like very eerie. It was like, "Holy crap!" And and I'm like, "All right, I'll see you later, bro." And I go around the corner, and at that point, from from that, those containers, all the way to the northern wall, there's literally, I can still remember this, though it was a long time ago. There's literally a, a mobile kitchen trailer sitting there. So you got one bound to a mobile kitchen trailer, which doesn't provide you much of anything to, with cover, maybe a little concealment, but it's also nighttime. And then beyond that is is maybe within hand grenade range, all the way to the back wall. And at the back wall, there's an, a, a, a hard stand latrine. Like maybe thirty feet long, made out of cement, and generally speaking, that's where the, the enemy fire was coming from at, at that point. And was what was also interesting is it, it's so dark that my night vision I can barely see anything. So even with night vision and and my laser on my weapon, I'm having difficulty seeing anything at all. And I still remember us we had talked. It's like we're not going to be able to use high explosive, which we would normally use lead with high explosive because there's U.S. troopers all over the place, police officers. So you know, we're like, we're going to have to go in close and, and, you know, use small arms and be very precise in our, in our ability. You can't just suppress wherever you want to, just because there's friendlies in the area. So I remember like that flowing through my mind as we, we moved up the city of the M- MKT, which is that mobile uh, kitchen uh, trailer. And that point it was, you had one more bound to the, to the hard sand latrine where the, the insurgent is, you know, sh- shooting out of. And so I remember at that point, um, you know, we're, we're trying to, you know, line up a shot and some grenades go off 
you know, in our vicinity. I remember getting knocked on my butt and being like, holy crap, what just happened? And we, we get back up and we're like, hey, we're going to assault. So we start moving towards the latrine, uh, kind of I call it the last final bound, trying to engage him, but he's in like a, a cement building in the doorway. And this this happens really quick. We're, we're moving forward. I still remember having my laser on and moving towards the building. And all of a sudden, I go flying through the air. At the time, I thought it was another grenade. After the fight, we realized that, you know, that that insurgent was a suicide bomber and he detonated himself in front of us. Um, but at the time, I, you, it's so fast, my eyes couldn't, couldn't like grasp that he had just detonated himself right in front of us. Um, so when that occurred, you know, I remember I was on the ground seeing stars, like what just happened, like in my hit. And I, I hear, you know, some of my paratroopers calling out like that they're wounded. And so I started moving forward. Um, and so Sergeant McLaughlin and Wilkinson and Fowler were, were injured um, by, by basically shrapnel. Um, we later found out that it was like a giant claymore the guy had on his chest. So there were like basically steel swaged balls in there. And then, and then my, my platoon leader, um, Chris Gecki was, was lying on the, lying on the floor. Um, and, and so we moved up, moved up to Chris and picked him up and started moving him back uh, towards the talk, you know, and I, I still remember looking at, and I was like, oh man, like, where is he hit? You know, I don't, I don't see anything. Um, but we moved him back to the talk and he was unresponsive. And when we got to the back of the talk, my, my company senior medic happened to, to show up there. Um, a, a, um, a specialist Robertson and he was back there. It's like, Hey, Chris is hit, you know, work on him. And that's when we, we, uh, realized that, that he had died from his wound. Um, and we moved him into the back of the talk and, you know, specialist Robinson went, moved on to, I think it was Wilkinson had the, had the, the worst shrapnel injury. So he started working on Wilkinson at that point. And I started ta- asking Robinson some questions and he had come to the talk to get help. And so that's when he informed me that the battalion aid station had been attacked, which is on the other side of camp. And, you know, that's, you know, he's like, it's been attacked. I think it's been destroyed. Like they need help over there. And then he told me um, a really, really frightening story um, that once the indirect, which we found out later wasn't indirect. It was a, an explosive. They blew the, they blew the wall open. Basically we assume it's like some sort of donkey cart. They drew, they brought it up to the wall, moved away, blew it up. When they did, they then attacked the, the towers to get the guards off the towers. So they used RPGs to attack the towers and that allowed the, the attackers to get in. Um, but right where they breached, right where they breached, as soon as you want, so they're coming in from the north. As soon as you walk in to the left is a force protection bunker. What did everybody do? They all went towards the force protection bunker. And so they, you know, it's basically, um, you know, three or four, uh, paratroopers and then a, a bunch of our interpreters, you know, got into that bunker. And, you know, scary thing is that's where the insurgents stormed in. And what they did was they turned into the bunker, opened fire, and then threw a bunch of hand grenades in. And, and my senior medic was at the other end. And so he was able to get out. But unfortunately, you know, so, you know, we, we lost five, five, uh, you know, and interpreters were in there. They all passed away. And then also, um, we had a, we had another, uh, soldier, uh, Sheldon Tate, who was also in there that was mortally wounded inside of that bunker right there. So when Robinson, you know, my, my medic's telling me this, I'm like, you know, I'm like, Oh, that's, we gotta, we gotta get over there. Like that's, that's where we need to go. 
and use that side. So if you think about it, we're kind of the northeast. We're going to go over to the western, northwestern portion of the compound and, you know, move to the aid station and, and see what help we can render there. So I grabbed, I grabbed my team. So we, we left behind, um, Wilkinson because he, he was a little bit too banged up, but first Sergeant Summers, Fowler, um, excuse me, first Sergeant, uh, Summers and McLaughlin and Sergeant Fowler, we all got together and we started moving across the compound. It sounds like you're making a lot of individual decisions, right? And this is basically a fire team you're leading. Was there an overall base defense concept that you were wired into? Were you getting commands on the radio? I mean, it- I mean, so I think at this point, it's it, it like the my battalion commander's trying to figure like what the but we don't we just don't know what we don't know yet. Um, and if you think about it, it's, it's at night, so most soldiers are like in their tents. They're, or they're out on patrol, right? So some were out on ambushes and out. So, um, but the majority were like in their tents. Some were like lifting. There was that meeting, the co- the commander's update going on. So we're just in a very bad position, you know, um, at that point in time. In terms of like base defense itself, we're reestablishing it at this point. So they quickly overwhelmed the towers um, and got inside the perimeter pretty quick. Um, and so we're basically retaking the northern portion of the of the compound. Um, but I was tied in with my S3 on the radio, telling him what's going on as 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 the as the engagement continued. I was talking to him, my small little group, and I think we grabbed we we picked up a, f- a few more people to come in and help us at that point. We start moving through you know the the tent area, um, which at this point is is it's gone, right? The the tents are knocked down, etc. As we move through the tents, we get to the far western side. And when we get over there, that's I think that's my initial link-up point with my old scout platoon. Like I, We come to the other side, and there they are, which, you know, really, I think, boosted my spirits because now I got, I got more, um, you know, soldiers that can actually, you know, fight proficiently. I know them personally. I've been, you know, I was their platoon leader for, you know, a year and a half. So, like, when I, when I got them, it was, it was like, all right, we got – we got a group. We even um, Bob Wilson, their platoon leader, was there. So now we can we can organize, right? So I think the first step was getting to the getting to the aid station, right? Getting in there and seeing, assessing that, and and then two other steps were, hey, let's 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 find this breach and plug it. And we were to discussing should we get someone up in the tower? We were having a discussion about that. But first, it was like secure the top uh, the the battalion aid station. And, and, and see what was, what was happening there. So we quickly moved over there. And when we did, like the aid station is, is, you know, it's just a tent. It's collapsed. Um, so I remember first Sergeant Summers, you know, crawled in there and I crawled in after him. And literally it was, it was a disaster. You know, medics working on casualties. Um, some of the medics when the aid station got hit were working on casualties when they were hit. Um, so, you know, we obviously, we know we need to move everybody out of here and get them to a new location. And so kind of, if you think about tasks, that's my first sergeant's like became the, the person to, to work that piece. And he worked that, you know, for the remainder of that engagement, working to evac casualties, get them to the new aid station, you know, work on getting, we got one medevac bird in that evening for the, the, the ones who, the people who were significantly injured and the rest we had to drive out the next morning. So he began executing that while, you know, me, my, tiny little element and the scouts are like, and we're talking at this point, we're like nine people. So we make the decision to try and just move, try and find this breach. We know 
we've kind of narrowed it down that it's it's going to be near the force protection bunker. So so we generally know where that is. And so we're going to move towards that position and see if we can plug the hole and then reestablish security. So we basically start moving forward and kind of like, you know, start bounding up. Um, I just remember we're getting, we're getting close to that area and all of a sudden grenades get tossed at us, you know, big explosion. I remember we bounded back, um, cause we were like in the open. So we moved back, um, to a, to a, a covered position and, and it's like, I'm like, Hey, we're going to need to set up some sort of machine gun or something to, so we can suppress or have overwatch to get over there. And that's when, um, you know, my, my, uh, mortar, section sergeant showed up. So Sergeant Fielder showed up with some of, some of my guys and they had a machine gun. And I was like, perfect. And they're like, hey, we tried to get up into the tower, but when we went up, we took an RPG. So we decided not to go up in the tower. So it's like, okay, I'm going to grab you. We're going to go set up a machine gun to overwatch where we think we think the breach is. And that's when like a couple of the scouts are like, hey, we'll get on top of the the tower and see if we can get some, you know, get get a good position to to observe as well. And so a few scouts go up into the tower. I grab Sarn Fielder and and our machine gun team, and we move over and establish a position. And they're literally like laying on top of a down tent and just overwatching. At that point, we're like, okay, we got Overwatch. We got someone up in the tower. Let's 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 do another attack. Let's do another assault. And I'm like, so I, I was like, the scouts, they were going to go far towards the breach, and I was going to take a small element and go into the force protection bunker. Um, you know, kind of, we see those as the two objectives, the breach, and then this force pro bunker, potentially another objective. And so it's kind of, it's kind of interesting. We're like literally getting ready to go. And from the bunker, that's maybe like hand grenade range away. There's someone yelling. And I, I still remember this. He was like, I'm like, like we're communicating. He's yelling. I'm like, who are you? And he's like, it's Colson. So this, this, you know, PV2 Colson, um, part of our, um, supporters on the base. He's inside the force pr- protection bunker. I'm like, holy crap. What I heard from my, my medic, you know, that thing was just wiped out. And so I, I'm like, come out. And so all of a sudden this paratrooper runs out and I grab him and get him behind cover. And I was like, what's in there? He's like, and he's like, I don't know. Like everybody's dead inside. And I'm just like, okay, secure him. Let's go. And so we make that, we make that assault, and and so the scouts going long, and and me and my small element going short. And I remember I'm coming up to the bunker, and I'm like, I hear noise in there, and I'm like, I don't, I don't know what to expect. And I go in first, and I see eyes. So I'm like pointing, you know, my laser at the eyes, and I'm like, who is that? And like no response. So I flick over to my white light and shine it, and there's an interpreter, his eyes staring at me, and he's like laying in a pile of bodies. And so I reach in and pull him out. Um, he was significantly wounded, huge ab wound. And so we start moving him um, towards, you know, the, the makeshift, you know, aid station that we set up. And I, I'm, I'm looking through this bunker and it's at least five, five six, seven dead in there. So I'm like, all right, we're going to have to like sweep this thing here in a minute. But it's clear for now. There's no no enemy. And at that point, that's when like kind of the, the final engagement went on. As the scouts got to the breach point, the guys on the tower were able to engage down as insurgents were moving out. Interestingly enough, they were all suicide bombers. So when they got hit, they exploded um, outside the northern portion of the compound. And at that point, we had them out. So we pushed whatever, whatever 
insurgents that we could find. We pushed them out. And that's when we started securing, you know, consolidating, getting security. I had Sergeant Fielder go back and bring up our gun trucks and drive them over, you know, the the tents and and establish a, a position of overwatch and start getting people on top of buildings, um, et cetera. But now we got to sweep the whole compound. We know the bunker. We got we to gotta get in there and see what's going on in there. And we got to account for everybody in this in this chaos. So while this is going on, my first sergeant's still working the medevac piece. They get an aircraft in, um, and they're able to get out some of the some of the significant wound, wounded personnel uh, to go back to the Roll Three Hospital uh, at Kandahar Airfield. You know, but at this point, we're like we got to establish security and we got to start sweeping for potential more enemy, but also for you know any any wounded um, Americans, but also to account for everybody, which which is like a significant challenge. You know, which which definitely. Took us some time to to account for everybody. So pretty quickly, I was able to account for my personnel because we're all like on comms and and I know a couple, you know, some are at the at the talk. So then it's just trying to account for everybody else on the base while we're doing aid and litter, right? We're moving people out of the bunker, look sweeping the entire area for other casualties, and and we come up with we're we're missing we're missing a soldier. So um, I, I I still remember this because it was like. In this chaos, we're going to have to find this uh, Staff Sergeant Christopher Stout. He was actually our our chaplain's assistant. I think they have a different name now for that. But he's missing. And so we have to find him in this chaos. When you heard that he was missing, what went through your mind? So I, I still I still think like, you know, we're I'm, st- I'm still like focused on what we're doing. Like I, I haven't. I'm just focused on the mission, on on getting the task done. You know, I hadn't yet. I didn't want to lose that kind of like a, adrenaline slash focus um, because then you plummet real quick. So um, my focus was finding him. Um, and I still remember talking to uh, one of my one of my buddies. I think it was uh, Nate Davis. And I'm like, where does he live? Because maybe he was in his tent when the attack happened. And so that that it was use your mind. Where do you think he is? He's not in the force pro bunker, right? He's not in the talk, the aid station. We got everybody out. Like we're narrowing it down. I'm like, where, where, where does he live? And so we went to what was left of his tent and, and that's where we found him. Um, he was also killed in action. At that point we had positive accountability of everybody. We found no more insurgents, um, in the compound. Additional units started arriving, uh, to provide us, you know, more assistance with the, the security piece. Um, and that kind of like culminated that, that incident, obviously the next, when the sun came up, we then had to bring the remainder of the casualties to Kandahar by, by vehicle, which was, you know, by that point I'm smoked and it was, it was a, not a pleasant ride trying to get there, but that's how we evac the, the remainder of the casualties in the morning. But that's kind of, that's kind of like how the, how the, the fight, fight closed. As you're securing the compound. Is battalion able to reestablish command and control, or is it still individual small unit actions led by small 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 unit? Now, they're what they were doing was getting other units to move to us. They still had external control, but no internal control to the compound, right? Um, because it was just utter chaos, you know. Um, and we, we didn't even talk. I didn't even talk about the, the Afghan police. Like I just omitted them from the story. Um, you know, after after that initial attack, they de facto didn't participate. Though we did have to police up some of their casualties, they did lose uh, lose at least one police officer. But I, I like literally picked up 
some of their casualties and carried them to the casualty collection point. Um, but they basically were like, all right, we're going to go the southern portion of the compound and stay out of the way. Um, which, which in hindsight, maybe that makes sense, right? I mean, you know, I think at the time I was like, why aren't they helping? But then again, could have, could have resulted in, in accidents being had. So I think in hindsight, I was like, you know what? That was probably smart. Get accountability of their large formation and don't be moving through an area with Americans trying to repel this attack, you know? So, um, but at the time I was, I was pretty ticked off. I was like, they're not helping, you know, which, I can understand. I mean, their their barracks got hit by multiple RPGs. They're trying to figure figure you know this stuff out, just like we were. In the end, how many attackers were there? We do not know. So there's obviously some sort of support by fire that was established outside. So th- this is this is our this is our running theory. I think th- was that attack was meant for the prison that they got over there, and probably when I was driving in the guards were awake, right? And actually paying attention. And so that's probably that small arms fire that, you know, I was perceiving in my, you know, mine resistant vehicle that you have like no concept of what's going on outside your bubble. But I think they went over to the prison and decided it was not a good target that night. And the target of opportunity is this, you know, Afghan American base that they probably had good intel on because they knew exactly where they were going um, and they did it, you know, quickly. I mean, if you think about it, explosive to breach the wall, knocked out the towers immediately, and then immediate, and then immediately their assaulters came in. They knew where the force protection bunker was. They knew where the hard stand buildings were that they could fight out of. Um, but we, but they did have ample time that if they had any wounded to to move them out, right? And and like I said, they maintained that Overwatch position outside the base for the duration of that op. So when when my mortar you know, uh, mortarmen were trying to get up into the tower, they got engaged again. So they were clearly providing that overwatch. So we don't really have like an understanding of how many came in. You know, I definitively, the one at the hard stand latrine and at least two by the bunker, all suicide vests. But we also don't know the battalion aid station, you know, did another one clack off right there. We know they walked up and, and shot the aid station with machine gun fire. Do they subsequently detonate themselves, which we don't have to get into, like looking parts and, and other things, you know. You talk about the sun coming up. The previous time hack we had was a 2100 meeting where you're about to get, you know, read the riot act. How long did this engagement last? Three hours from start to finish. So it ends... I say, I say, I say start from... The initial, you know, explosion all the way until we've consolidated into, you know, hasty battle positions on the, the northern portion of the compound. And at that point, then you're doing the final accountability, the, the, the full sweep. When did the adrenaline dump? Um, probably at the worst. Like it's I feel like I, I me and, and the guys we were we were pretty good going all the way to Kandahar, which I don't even. But that's when it dumped. Um, and so our ride back was, was scary because we're, we can't stay awake to save our lives. Um, we did, but it was another like, you know, hour plus drive to get back to our base. Um, but I, I still remember I was like still switched on. Like I could feel as we drove towards Kanahar, like I'm like starting to settle down. But then on the way back, it was like, couldn't keep, couldn't keep my eyes open. You know, me and my driver are like, stay awake, don't fall asleep. Like. 
um, as we drove on, you know, what is it, four up to one. Um, what sort of conversations did you have with your NCOs and your young officers after the attack? Well, I mean, I mean, first of all, we lost, we lost Chris. So that, you know, that's a, that was a pretty big hit. Um, you know, first platoon, um, you know, didn't, you know, didn't obviously did not take it very well. Um, you know, and I think, you know, really me and my first sergeant spent more time with them. You know, we knew at this point, long deployment coming to an end. Um, you know, we've had, you know, some, some casualties along the way and it was really just watching out for them because they were probably not in the best space. Um, you know, they did just subsequent to that. I did relieve their platoon sergeant. And so they have an acting platoon sergeant. They lost their PL. Now I'm going to introduce a new, a new platoon leader right at the end of a deployment. Um, so we knew like, Hey, we're, we're going to, I think I, I live there for the, in their, their cop for the rest of the, the deployment. Um, you know, off and on, but almost that was like my, where I hung my hat for most of the time, um, just to watch out for them. Um, I think like deep conversations, I think there was, I think there was just a little like frustration because obviously that wasn't our base and, and, you know, fortunately, unfortunately, you know, we were there, you know, potentially helped quite a bit in that engagement. It was just, we were a little frustrated with the security. You're a company commander. You've trained with these soldiers, you've lived with these soldiers, you've heard about these soldiers, even if you haven't been out on patrol with them. And now all of a sudden in the dark, on an American-Afghan combined base, you have to lead them. Because a company commander is not supposed to be clearing a bunker. A company commander is not supposed to be looking down those sites. How did that change your interaction with them? How did, how did they respond? I think it, it was out of necessity. So it wasn't like I was still trying to use the soldiers that I had, right? I had a couple good gunfighters um, in that group. Obviously, I'm my first sergeant. Um, so I wanted to use them to do what, what they do, right? I got a team leader. I got a squad leader. I got a platoon sergeant. I got a PL. Like, do they normally operate as a group? Heck no. But I still wanted to use them because, you know, that's their, their you know, they're, they've been in the fight this whole deployment, uh, you know. And so I used what I had had on hand, right? And there was, I would say there was a little bit more like discussion that, which was just like, you think about it in this situation, it's like, how do you have time for a discussion? But we did, we talked about what we need to do because we're not an organic fire team or squad that is going to do fire and, and maneuver or fire and movement. It's, we got to figure out what our, what our roles are. Um, so first it was just my guys. And then later on I got the scouts and it wasn't like, I was like, Hey, scouts, you're mine. I was talking to their platoon leader and being like, and we're having a discussion about what needs to occur um, versus me being like, do this, do that. It was, what do we need to do? Because we're still uncertain, you know, with what what is going on in, in totality. And then two, I think to come back on is fighting inside of a base, especially a base that I like, where is, you know, where are all these, you know, headquarters troopers? Like, like you got to be very careful with what you do which is not normal, right? In in normal combat, you lead with HE, as much HE as possible, and then more HE, and then you maneuver because 5.56 five, um, really doesn't do a lot of damage, right? Um, and, it, and, and that's one of the things that resonated with me. I'm like, wow, this is the worst thing you can get because I can't lead with, you know, some 40 mic mic or, 
you know, a small D or a law or grenades or we all we had to be very precise to be careful that we didn't, you know, cause fratricide uh, or getting a get it on a blue on blue engagement. So it was very it was I just remember being like this. This is the worst it can be because I can't use my tools. You know, I had to use. All right. We're just going to do move. We're just going to do movement. And once we get a known target, we'll engage it. But we had to put ourselves in, in an engagement area multiple times. But I think even in, in that whole scenario, there was there were times where, you know, we had a discussion. So it wasn't like me being like, you do this, you do that. It was, hey, let's what tasks do we need to do? Who's with our small elements? Who's going to do the task? And then let's go do them. You know, and I think that's this ad hoc team. Um, that's kind of how you have to fight, right? You got to figure out who's who and who can do what, and then and then and then come up with a course of action, and then and then move out. Um. Scott, that's a fascinating story from a hectic and chaotic night. I want to thank you for sharing it with us here on the Spear. Thank you, Tim. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.